The title of tonight's Dharma talk is Realizing Our True Nature. It could also be called Remembering Our True Nature, the reconnecting with who we are. And one of the things I was most aware of as I was kind of looking through the talk was that it's less of a talk and more of a kind of shared reflection that we'll be doing because the only way to find out who we are is to be paying attention, to keep looking into our own minds. But the question's been a question that's been central to every wisdom tradition through history. You know, who are we really? Who are we? Our sense of who we are, who we think we are, totally shapes our experience of life. It's the filter through which everything passes. And for most of us, we spend most of our time identified as a separate self with certain distinguishing characteristics. We usually have a few sub-personalities that we flip in and out of that we're most familiar with. You can see them here. There, we, we all have them. Sometimes we're in the sub-personality of um, meditator trying hard, meditator trying hard with some success, Meditator struggling and really not getting anywhere, you know. Pretender, kind of looking like I'm meditating and somebody else, don't belong here at all, kind of an outlier. Sometimes we get into the rebellious, you know, personality, or the victimized one. I mean, we've got a bunch of them. When we're in any of them, they become the world. Isn't it true? They just, our whole sense of body and mind are expectations for what's up and coming, everything takes the shape of that sub-personality that at that moment is our sense of self. The common ground in all of them is that there's contraction and a sense of separateness. Wei Wu Wai writes, why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. (laughs) 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 Which is really what Howie was speaking to last night, that we're not happy because there's some unreliable focus for everything, something that's not really there. So then what happens is there's there's a self that kind of understands that, that kind of gets it, and then feels embarrassed about the fact that we're so self-preoccupied. You know how that goes, and then ad infinitum. And it's interesting because somewhere deep down we intuit what's been described as no self, and so any sense of self feels something's wrong that goes along with it. But we'll explore that a little more as we go. The basic teachings are that this sense of a separate self, this contraction, and it's fear-based, obscures or veils who we really are, stops us from seeing who we are. And that the spiritual path, in a very simple way, is coming back to recognize our essence, rediscovering our nature. Now, it unfolds naturally. This true nature unfolds naturally, and it naturally unfolds with reminders. The reminders sometimes come internally prompted, and then there are the reminders that Howie described last night, the heavenly messengers. And there are other reminders. Beauty is a reminder. There are many reminders. 
the mindfulness bell, and this is in many forms, in many traditions, is really a way of calling. It's calling us back into this moment to discover what's true. To drop everything. And as we go through tonight, to make use of this sound, to just periodically drop it all, see what's true. It's really our training. The Buddha taught noble truths that are really, in the most basic sense, um, processes of awakening, the truths about how it's happening, the sequence, which is really very interrelated. And they're noble truths because they're really the sequence of awakening that each one of us is going through, that we keep going through over and over again, that awakening beings through history have gone through. And we can see it here in the most simple form. The first truth, awakening begins with the seeing of what is, that we see what's happening. We see and recognize suffering. We see the grasping and the contraction. We see the clinging, the fear. We see impermanence. I heard a great description of this. Some of you know this, that uh, one student described in at IMS that really this first noble truth, this truth of suffering, is kind of like rope burn. It's like trying to hold on to a moving rope and you know what happens. It hurts. Clinging hurts. Seeing the suffering. Second noble truth, this seeing allows us to let go. There's a letting go that comes with that. Seeing. Seeing the clinging, letting go. And the third, that this letting go is experienced as freedom, that we let go into the stream of life, we realize freedom. And the fourth truth is a here's how, through all the parts of our life, the qualities of awareness get cultivated and lived out to experience this freedom. One of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan teacher, described the truths this way. See the glue, let go, let be, be free. Just, it's the same stuff. See the glue, let go, and just let be into what is. Be free. So let's look closer at this. In retreat, we know that we spend a lot of our time recognizing the contractions, recognizing the grasping, the clinging, talked a few nights ago about how the way we start seeing it is it is like armor. It is the spacesuit that we've taken on that we keep replaying out. And the suffering is we think it's who we are. The, in that identification, we become small. There's a Hindu story of the child in the womb who sang, let me remember who I am. And her first cry after birth was, oh, I have forgotten already. There's a very deep wiring to identify the self, to identify others as their appearances, as their spacesuits look like. You know, we see another person and what we see is the way their persona acts out clinging and resistance. And we see that in ourselves and that's who we are. And it gets very static. We lock into an idea of this is how I am and that's how that person is. And it 
It creates separation and reactivity to see each other as our personas or our spacesuits. There's a compelling and sad experience I have regularly, and it, like many parents, I'm sure others that are parents probably do this, when my son's asleep, I'll creep in and I'll just kind of hang out for a while and just watch him. And while I'm watching him, there's a kind of a, a deep looking, like, who are you really? You know, because there's such, there's no reactivity going on. So I'm just kind of, who are you? Who are you? And it's so much easier at that point to really see this very pure, divine expression of just life. It's just energy, living energy in the most pure and um, beautiful way. And so I, I kind of bow to that. And, and each time that happens, I kind of, re-vow during the day to, to see that, to see who he is and not be so controlling and reactive and defensive and distracted and all the other things, all the other ways that I react to his and my armor mingling. <coughs> and then every day I forget again, you know. It's so easy to get caught in this reactivity we have to each other's edges and not really see who's there and not really see who's within us. And many people find the same thing, that it's much easier with a sleeping child or with a person we love but that's at a distance, you know, or people after they die. It's very easy to connect even more deeply sometimes to the essence of the connection. And how I describe this, how it's really sustained and felt after death because it's so real and alive. And you're not kind of operating in the personas with each other. For some, it's easier to be open with animals for that same reason. I was talking to one friend today who's describing that phenomenon of the openness with animals and specifically with dogs, and I suggested that he see each person as a dog. (laughs) (laughs) So, to inquire how we really look closely at these spacesuits and how is it we get so identified. Now, just as a starting point, it's part of our natural unfolding to get identified and to think we're a separate self. It's meant to be that way because that's how it is. That's what actually happens. We all, almost everybody I know, I don't know anyone this hasn't happened to, emerges through life and thinks they're separate for quite a while. Right? At all. We're all together on this one right now. That each person seeks um, completion, enhancement, grasps the things, avoids things, defends, and so on. So this is a basic part of the psychobiology of life, that this is how we are. Ken Welber, who's a transpersonal psychologist, describes quite beautifully the stages of unfolding of how we identify, that we, before birth, are part of the maternal matrix. We're kind of fused with the all. And then we emerge in our early uh, months or whatever, it becomes a sense of a body self. There's a body self that can operate and interact with the rest of the world. As time goes on, the sense of identification becomes smaller, becomes, instead of a body self, a mental self, that's operating on a body. So the spacesuit becomes more controlling now, controlling the body and the environment. And then it gets smaller yet. We become 
a part of the mind that we identify with that pushes away other parts of the mind, creates shadows. You know, we, we just, this is control center. It's like having a city that's much, much more concrete than trees. We get very disconnected from the rest of it, but we're controlling. And yet all evolved creatures do this, and the more complex in the, in the evolutionary ladder, actually the more dissociation and the more control that's going on. Our, our space suit is much more elaborate than that of an amoeba, right? <laughs> but they do the same stuff. They contract and they grasp. You know, they move the way we do. Our most contracted place of identification is what's called the separate self-concept. It's the part of the mind that has an idea about who we are. And how we get it? As early, in early childhood, we don't have the self-reflective awareness that can describe and sense who we are. So our whole sense of who we are is based on how our parents perceive and react to us and how our culture reacts to us. That's what tells us who we are. And of course, that's based on how they're reacting to themselves and how their parents reacted to them and back and back and back. But that's where our pri- a lot of our particular self-concept comes from. There's some archetypes too, but the, the ones that distinguish us come, come that route. We internalize the reflections of those people around us, how they see and respond to us. Now, identification's like a glue. It's the glue that takes consciousness, this boundless awareness, and attaches it to something smaller than its natural boundlessness. So any idea of self is smaller than who we are, but that's what we latch on to. And instead of the immediate and vital sensory experience of being, our life, as I mentioned, gets filtered through these ideas of who we are. Now this development of self is natural. We all need spacesuits, and we all need to move through this kind of uh, environment with some help of the ego but it becomes a prison if that's the end of the story. The impetus to open out of that sense of separate self comes when we begin to see the suffering of it, that it's small, it's claustrophobic, it's stifling, it's uncreative, and it's less than what really is. That we're wrapped up in this attempt to control things and we can't live fully, we can't love fully. And you can see how small things get. Um, One of my son's friends, and my son's 11, um, I've known him for years, and he's always been this very easygoing, relaxed, friendly kid. He lives in D.C., and in the last year, he's become a lot more tense and a lot more anxious. And recently, his mom said that he asked her if he could get a gun. And the reason why is he says, you know, there's a lot of crazy people out there. It's dangerous. And there are. I mean, he's in D.C., and D.C. is murder capital of the world, and it is dangerous. And you could see the contraction of self in the face of danger. There's a lot of craziness. So as long as we sense ourselves as separate and endangered, we start getting smaller and smaller. In Japan, I heard that for $100 an hour, you can do stress karaoke. Do you know what that is? You pay $100 an hour to go into a room and take things and throw them and break them. 
That's it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This is like a main recreation there. Then on the other side of the world, in Toronto last year, a man carried a goose into a donut shop shouting, give me some money or I'll kill the goose. (laughs) This is craziness, right? He actually repeated the same stunt a few days later with a raccoon. (laughs) He had hit some hard times. Maybe he needed to do stress karaoke, you know. (laughs) So... The world is uncertain, it's violent, it feels threatening to any sense of a separate self, and it really points to something much deeper, which is we feel threatened by impermanence. As long as we feel separate, we're clinging on to, wanting to be here, and we're threatened by impermanence. And our being starts organizing around that. In the ways we organize around that, try to numb out with our addictions, try to make more money to feel secure, and a million other ways to protect. And these roles become who we are. The roles that we take on to kind of in some way buffer this threat of impermanence becomes who we are. We get very, very small. In New York's garment district, a little old man was hit by a car. While waiting for an ambulance, the, po- the policeman tucked a blanket under the guy's chin and asked, are you comfortable? The man said, I make a nice living. (laughs) (laughs) But you understand. I mean, the sense of ourself and who we are, it's very locked in. (laughs) So the first active facet of awakening is this recognition of how we've gotten small, Seeing, seeing the suffering of it, seeing the primal mood of fear that underlies any sense of being a self that's separate. The second part, and this is really the heart of our practice, is in the seeing, the letting go. Seeing and letting go. This is the basic principle, the freeing principle of mindfulness. When we see what's happening at any moment, if we really, really are paying attention, In that moment of seeing, there's an opening out of the shape of what we're caught in. For me, and I've mentioned this in many, many talks, the image that works the best is sensing awareness as an ocean, and anything that we're caught in is a wave or a set of waves in that ocean. And for the time that we're suffering, we've taken their shape. We actually, that glue of identification keeps us in the small shape of those waves. With mindfulness, the fullness of awareness, we open back into the ocean and include the wave, but we're not limited to it. Letting go into what's true, letting go into whatever is arising this moment, not holding on. We form our identity with words and ideas and content. And when we're thinking that's who we are, there's a squeeze. And in seeing that, in seeing that we're squeezed, in sensing 
how small that is, that moment of sensing begins to open us. This shift in identity is really what the Buddha described as the most basic opening into freedom. The Buddha talked again and again about the small self, about that identification that we have the power with awareness to open out of. It happens a lot here. I've seen in so many interviews, I've seen that movement from thinking and being identified with the smallness to the recognition and opening. This morning, one person caught in doubting and in just beginning to say, oh, doubting, doubting, and sensing the fear under, ah, fear, fear, and beginning to make room, letting the fear float, making space, became more the space of awareness that was seeing what was happening, and less identified with the stories about the doubting. Joko Beck describes this in terms of ice cubes, and some of you have heard this metaphor, that we're like ice cubes with edges, with definitions and stories, and with awareness, there's a melting that goes on. Our edges melt. We start returning back to the the flowing and fluid and watery and essential element that we are. We're melting here. Even when we sense tension in our hand and soften our hands, our sense of identity changes, relaxing shifts who we are. Now this becomes most illuminating when we begin to really deepen the practice in working with thoughts. And most of you here that I've connected with, this is happening a lot. The sense of really recognizing when thoughts are happening and in the moment of recognition, opening back into that larger space of awareness that sees but is not identified. When we're inside thoughts, they have the power to control our lives. They flavor and control everything. Take a moment to reflect, if you will. Just close your eyes. And take in your reflection a look at something that's been difficult in the recent past today, yesterday, recently. And sense what that was about, what was going on, how it felt. And then sense your experience of self in this story, the who you are. the texture of it, the sense of it, the feeling of it. Who are you in this difficult situation? And then include in your awareness the recognition that you're in a room of 20-some people that are all reflecting on difficult situations and on their sense of self. Sense of space this is all happening in. Relaxing the awareness and just noticing what's true right now. Sensations, sounds, the tendrils or leftovers of the reflection. Really open very honestly to what's true. 
check out what your sense of yourself is this moment. Who's the self there this moment? Coming back. Opening your eyes. We try to know who we are and what life's about through the movies of our mind. We all do it some, and we very much believe the world is as we think of it. We have an idea of the world, and we think that's what it actually is out there. And we subscribe to that as the shape of reality. When our ideas can represent at best just a kind of an indicator, they can just point in the direction of what's going on. Whatever you think, it's not that. Whatever you think it's like, that's not what it's like. It's just images and sound blips to describe. There's a cartoon with fleas wandering in a forest of fur, wondering whether there really is a dog. (laughs) We can't think our way to freedom. It's impossible. Antonin Artaud writes, if our life lacks a constant magic, it is because we choose to observe our acts and lose ourselves in consideration of their imagined form instead of being impelled by their force. Do you understand? We live in thoughts. We can't feel the living truth of what's happening. We're in a representational world. And it's not about getting rid of thoughts. It's about not being caught inside them. Cultivating the power to recognize what's happening and with the light of awareness melting the glue. One of the most basic descriptions of this practice of, of seeing and letting go is that it's a description really of dying. And in many, many traditions, waking up and dying are equated. Consider this, that it's only by thinking and judging and comparing and mental contraction that we can even construct a sense of a self, a solid, static self. You have to be thinking, judging, comparing to do that. It's only by contracting in your body against life, by grasping onto things, that you can sense in a bodily way a self. We know ourselves through our physical contractions, through our resistance, through our ideas. That's how we have a sense of self. So in any training where we're releasing identification, the thoughts in the mind, where we're releasing resistance, we're dying to that sense of self. We're releasing that sense of self. Spiritual life is learning how to die, releasing the thought, opening to the fear, making room. For that reason, we have a deep and real interest in watching other people die. It's very instructive. It teaches us. It teaches us what leads to freedom. It teaches us what perpetuates suffering. And hence the power of listening to Howie last night describe really these messengers and his own experience with his dad. 
couple of years ago, I had two friends that at the same time were losing a parent. And it was very, um, it was a really profound experience because of the differences in how it went. And one of them was Jack Cornfield, who many, all of you have heard of. And his father was dying and died in a way that was really difficult. He was a uh, very judgmental and bitter man through his life, and he died in the same way. He was very, very fearful and um, first into total denial and then very, very angry and scared, and so much so that he'd stay up all night, as Jack's stories go, watching the heart monitor to see if he was about to get a heart attack instead of just sleeping and resting. And just so tight that even in the last days he was not able to um, feel feel the love that was coming towards him or really express love. And it, was, and it was sad, but it was a very real example of how when we live our life struggling and judging and resisting, we go down struggling and judging and resisting. At the same time, another very good friend on the West Coast uh, also lost her dad. And the story was just so different that he, at first he was... Um, angry when he first realized what was going on. But quite quickly, there was this shift where he began to relax. And the more clear it was that he was leaving, the more relaxed and the more present he became. He just stopped trying to hold on to life so much. And in letting go, the moments were absolutely precious. They were vivid, they were open, they were alive. Even as his mind began to deteriorate, the um, open-heartedness of his being was so predominant that there was just an enormous amount of, of tenderness. It was just, she said it felt like eternity because the moments were so full to be with him. And kind of bearing witness and listening and sensing these two different ways really had a profound impact on me in terms of deepening my practice, knowing why am I doing this? To learn how to die. And it's not just to learn how to die when some years down, or maybe not some years, whatever, this body goes, but really learning how to die now, day by day, so that these moments can be lived fully, so we're not fighting our way through the day. You know that feeling of just trying to get through this day? That's the saddest thing in the world, that we would try to get through a day and not just cherish the moments and really live in the middle of them. And kind of bearing witness and listening and sensing these two different ways really had a profound impact on me in terms of deepening my practice, knowing why am I doing this? To learn how to die. And it's not just to learn how to die when some years down or maybe not some years, whatever, this body goes, but really learning how to die now day by day, so that these moments can be lived fully, so we're not fighting our way through the day. You know that feeling of just trying to get through this day? That's the saddest thing in the world, that we would try to get through a day and not just cherish the moments and really live in the middle of them. Pema Chodron writes about the way to live that we don't experience the here and now when we're fighting, when we're struggling. 
So we practice stopping the war. This is really our practice, to not struggle, to, to let go of what we're holding on to. And we do it in all sorts of ways. We do it in little ways of sensing the obsessions and just going, ah, okay, obsessing, and just trying to open the awareness and feel what it's like to be holding so tightly by releasing our judgments, by forgiving. These are all dying, dying to be here, to live fully. We die so we can love. Just not holding so tightly to our beliefs. We all have these ideas of how it is and we get more safe when we feel certainty. So we just hold tight and kind of dig in our heels. Another little story, um, one, one person at retreat who was um, going for a walk and, and enjoying the walk and really um, delighting in, in a flower that was quite lovely and also quite common and then getting really hooked on trying to remember the name of that flower but not being able, you know the suffering of that one? Wanting to remember, more of us are getting it more and more over the years. Wanting to remember and not being able to part. So spent, <laughs> spent you know, the whole day, and she told, she told the flower, I'm going to remember your name. <laughs> she, talk, she talks to flowers. And um, promised to, and she struggled through the day to remember the name and couldn't. And so the next day, um, finally relaxed about it, and sure enough, the name of the flower popped up. It, by the way, the name was Forget-Me-Not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> this just happened in the last two days. This is here. <laughs> Interviews are really interesting here. <laughs> You know how it is when we're trying really hard? It's such a great example when we try to remember and there's fear and anxiety in it and we can't. We can't connect with what's true. We stop trying, it comes up. This happens everywhere. What we most long for is available when we're not fighting so hard, not grasping so hard. Pema Chodron again, about the way to live. Stop struggling against the fact that things are slipping through our fingers. Stop struggling against the fact that nothing's solid to begin with and things don't last. Things are slipping through our fingers. Moments are going, 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 gone. Then there's new moment and then that's gone and this day is gone and we're coming to the end of a retreat and it all's going fast and it's all coming back fast. New creative moments. Stop holding on. Don't get rope burned by holding on. Don't resist the flow of it. Just be with it to live it fully. When we do, it allows us to feel a sense of completeness and wholeness and much, much peace. This, is, this poem is called Letting Myself Die. There is no way of letting these waves wash through without drowning in this ocean. Seaweed tangling up the hopeful and clever one who is looking for an easy ride to a free place. The ticket is in the hands of those who die all the time to every wind that blows. The whispered invitation has come with the years pressing on this body, let go, die, die. Life keeps slipping through fingers, a continual song of loss. So why the dumb, the, cons- the constant refusal, the dumb routine of getting through the day, pretending death is a horizon, an unreal backdrop to a strange dream? Why always sitting down to eat 
and not letting this self be devoured by the mysterious appearances of life. When even for a moment the sea erodes this tough stance, my water body dances free through great empty skies. As soon as we open and relax this tight fist of grasping, resisting, struggling, infinite space is there. It's open, it's inviting, it's comfortable. Remembering to let go and take a moment to do so. Noticing what's true, if there's holding, if there's tightness. And in the noticing, letting go, letting be. Resting natural, great peace, this exhausted mind. Not to struggle, not to resist anything. Learning how to die, how to let go, is learning how to live, to be fully with these moments. We let go of the ideas that limit us, of the armor that blocks us from our vulnerability, aliveness, and heart, of what blocks us from each other. This letting go is quite creative, because when we let go of what we're holding, we're open to life, we're open to the mystery. We let go of the breath, we're open for the next breath. We're available. It's a creative process. This facing mortality allows us to really cherish the moment, to let go into the moment. I love this from uh, Zorba the Greek. This is Kazantzakis. Maybe you're right, boss. It all depends on the way you look at it. Look, one day I had gone to a little village. An old grandfather of 90 was busy planting an almond tree. What, granddad, I explain, planting an almond tree? They grow very slowly, by the way. And he, bent as he was, turned round and said, My son, I carry on as if I should never die. I replied, And I carry on as if I was going to die any minute. Which one of us was right, boss? So our training and practice here is to pay attention to what's happening in the moment of seeing, to let go of what we're holding, to open, to notice, to be with. And what we find is we do that. We do that in small ways and even big ways. We'll connect with some emotional, difficult piece and and we'll open to it and let go around it and there'll really be a feeling of connection and freedom. And then what happens? You know. Recontract. It comes in many ways. We'll recontract like, oh, time to go home and leave retreat now. Or it'll recontract and want to eat a lot of food or doubt that it ever really meant anything that we felt it in the... You know, there's a million ways that we recontract. And so what happens is we're challenged to keep on looking again, to let our seeing of the tightness, of the grasping, of the resistance go deeper and deeper. There are levels to recognizing what's happening. We sometimes do it half-willingly. I described it this morning as kind of a glancing note. Oh, fear, fear. And sometimes it's really fear, fear, and letting it float, letting it be there in a deep way. But it's layered. And what happens is 
this ego, once we see things, wants to come back, wants to get resurrected. It does not go easily, right? It does not die easily. Some of you know that one definition of death, Patrick Henry's second choice. (laughs) That's a slow one. It kind of catch it after a bit. (laughs) Jerry Joyner writes, the truth will set you free, but before it does, it will make you angry. You know? we, keep a, we see something, but then contract against it, and then have to see it more and more deeply. It's part of our nature to struggle like this. It is part of our nature to grasp, to cling, to try to not have the ego die. That's part of our nature. And it's also part of the natural way. It's the grace of our path that we keep waking up that our longing for freedom keeps having us look again. We want to be free. We don't want to be stuck. So it's scary to move down the path of freedom, but we seem to keep doing it. Have you noticed? We keep coming back, even though we recontract. We become aware, become available to this grace as we become more intentional. The more we realize the possibility of freedom, the more intentional we become about looking deeply, letting go. The more we do that, the more confidence we get that, ah, it works, and then we get more intentional. So we've talked some about the different ways of letting go. You know, this morning, some, there was a few people that described it, but it's that sense of if restlessness comes, let me die of it, the surrendering into what is. Let me be eaten by it, if it's one of these great energies or forces in the Tibetan style. I mentioned the other day that lying down on the icy couch. I don't know if any of you explored that, but when there's contraction or pain or tension, just kind of lie down into it. With each, the courage to lean into the experience of agreeing with what is, allowing it, opens us to touch more space, more courage, more wakefulness. A Chinese woman over 2,000 years ago, Ziye, writes this, All night I could not sleep because of the moonlight on my bed. I kept on hearing a voice calling out of nowhere. Nothing answered, yes. I kept hearing a voice calling out of nowhere. Nothing answered, yes. Yes to the experience of this moment, lying down in it, really feeling it. The first of the living truths is the seeing of suffering, the recognizing of what is. The second, letting go, letting go of the clinging. We see clinging, we let go. The third is the experiencing of the possibility of freedom, realizing freedom. What do we realize in letting be? Who are we in moments of letting be? In a moment of not clinging, not resisting, who are you? 
what the mind realizes is that we are a real, changing, wakeful flow of experiencing. We're a flow of experiencing. It's been described as cognizant awareness, awareness that experiences. Joanna Macy describes it as we're an information flow-through. I thought that was kind of good. So this gets clarified, the sense of being cognizant awareness. We get a little quiet and we start paying attention to the knowing quality of awareness. Sound is known. Sound is known. Sensations are known. That rather than focusing on the sound or the sensation, we begin to be recognizing the awareness that's experiencing. What else we realize? That this awareness is uncontained. It's boundless. There's no boundary to it. Let me ask you to reflect again, closing your eyes. And please listen. As you listen, sense the awareness that perceives sound. The awareness that knows that registers. Sound is heard by awareness. Where is the boundary to this awareness? As we pay attention, we discover we are a changing flow of experiencing, cognizant, naturally open. We discover there's no self that can be found. Awareness is empty of self. We are no thing. We're not a thing, an entity, static. Self is nowhere to be found. The only way this self can exist is as an idea, a movie. So part of our practice, as we described this morning, when the self arises in this way, to turn the mind on itself. When there's a movie, instead of watching the movie and believing it, we turn the awareness on the projector and then on the maker of the projector, on Hollywood, and then on just the arising of ideas, sound bites, dissolving images, we turn the mind on itself. Reflecting again, closing your eyes, bringing to your awareness the current predominant sensation, our emotion, right now, Pleasant or unpleasant. Paying attention to that.
and then inquiring who is experiencing this. Turning the mind, who is experiencing this? Who is feeling this sensation? Listening to this sound, experiencing this mood. Inquiring and really looking, who is experiencing this? looking and letting go into what is seen. Even when we see there's no self, the sense can remain as a vague impression in us, and our practice is to keep noticing that, paying attention, turning the mind, recognizing even this vague sense of self as an arising and passing of sensations, of fleeting images. I see nobody on the road, said Alice. I only wish I had such eyes, the king remarked in a fretful tone, to be able to see nobody, and at that distance, too. (laughs) There is no one home, just experiencing just cognizant, unconfined, empty of self-awareness. It's just happening. Facets of being arise like a wave from the ocean of life, are temporary forms, a moving expression of ocean. Some traditions call this ocean the Tao, the divine, the fertile void, the unborn. Out of it our lives appear as reflections of the divine, as a moment a movement, or dance of consciousness. The most profound healing comes when we sense and touch this life-giving emptiness. Healing and freedom when not identified as a separate self. It liberates us from the reactivities that stop us from being here. This identification, when we let it go, frees us that we and let go of defending, judging, grasping, free to dance, to live fully, free to feel with immediacy just what's here. This is a story about Trungpa Rinpoche. People were standing around at a distance when he and His Holiness Delgo Kensei Rinpoche were Um, meditating together in this garden. They were close enough to hear, but far enough away to give them privacy and space. It was a beautiful day. These two gentlemen had been sitting in the garden for a long time, just sitting there, not saying anything. Time went on, and they just sat in the garden, still not saying anything and seeming to enjoy it very much. Then Trungpa Rinpoche broke the silence and began to laugh. He said to Delgo Kensei Rinpoche, pointing across the lawn, They call that a tree, whereupon Kensei Rinpoche started to laugh, too. (laughs) Do you understand? No, yes. (laughs) These ideas are just nowhere near the real experience. They're just ideas of. 
One Dzogchen master wrote, Since everything is but an appearance, perfect in being what it is, having nothing to do with good and bad, acceptance or rejection, one may as well burst out in laughter. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a grim thing. It can't be. When we stop being so identified with the roles and the stories and the ideas, it's just stuff happening. And we become the happening. What the mind sees as empty of self, as changing, that quality of liberation of the mind is experienced by the heart as love. Just the same experience, the different ways of, of um, in feeling or interpreting it. One of the uh, metaphors or descriptions in the Tibetan lineages of the jeweled net of Indra. And in this jeweled net of Indra, every intersection of Indra's net is a jewel that reflects, illuminates, and relates to every other jewel in the net. Looking at any one of these jewels, we see all other jewels. Looking into a flower, we see the entire universe. Any experience that arises is conditioned by, influenced by, interconnected with every other experience that happens. There's no way to describe our experience this very moment as separate from having everybody else that's here be here, the food we ate, who our parents were, how they related to each other, what food they ate, the sun that shined on the trees and plants and flowers that were then creating their environment, it's all interconnected. Rumi writes, I am water, I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There is nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of pearling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. So our connectedness and our belonging is naturally expressed as love and compassion. When we're not holding to a separate self, we find who we are in each other. We find the love that's that shared space of being. This is a story about Ryokan, a Zen poet. He lived in a small hut at the foot of a mountain. One evening a thief broke in only to find that there was nothing in the hut worth stealing. When Ryokan returned, he found the thief and said, you've probably come a long way and you shouldn't return empty-handed. Please take my clothes as a gift. Shamefaced, the thief took the clothes and left. Ryokan sat down naked and looked up at the sky. Poor fellow, he said. I wish I could give him this beautiful moon. So awakening out of separateness, we become the awareness, the heart, which was really our shared nature. We awaken, as said in the book, Universe is a Green Dragon, we become an intensified field of the universe loving itself. Spacious awareness, recognizing the arising and passing of life, recognizing with care. 
So the path is to die again and again and again, to keep letting go into this wakeful, interconnected, loving awareness, which is our nature, which is our being. It takes dying. Rumi talks of this. I would love to kiss you. The price of kissing is your life. Now my loving is running toward my life, shouting, what a bargain, let's buy it. Each moment of non-clinging is a moment where we touch and discover and realize and remember who we are. Each moment of not resisting is a moment where we touch the freedom of our nature. We talk a lot in practice about recognize where the clinging is, see it. It's also equally important and valuable to begin more and more to recognize these moments of non-clinging because they happen all the time. We're just not paying attention to them sometimes. And when you notice it, notice, ah, this moment, not grasping, not pushing away, just this much. We start getting familiar with the quality of wakefulness and freedom which is our inherent birthright, which is our nature to discover. To pay attention to those moments, bow to them, and then just become them. Sit back and become the experiencing itself. So if you will, please, we'll close with a short meditation. Seeing what's true, letting go, letting be, being free. Love is the sea of not being, and there intellect drowns. Here swimming ends always in drowning. You lift up your robe so as not to wet the hem. Come, drown in this sea a thousand times. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.